What can Christians learn from men like Saul Alinsky? And what's smash mouth incrementalism? You're listening to Activist Radio on The Mark Harrington Show. The Mark Harrington Show is brought to you by Created Equal, and you can donate to our ministry by going to createdequal.org. Before we get into the program, folks, I want to bring attention to an event that's coming up in June. It's called the Day of Action. Uh, it'll be held here in Columbus, Ohio, and what we do there is we train Christians in pro-life apologetics, and then we take you out on the streets and give you an opportunity to use what you've learned. Uh, so you can go to our website at Created Equal. Uh, click on the Day of Action icon there, and you can uh, reserve a spot. Uh, it'll be June 13 and 14 being held here in Columbus. You don't want to miss it. Day of Action. Go to createdequal.org. Well, today on the program, I have as my guest Pastor Doug Wilson. And Pastor Doug is here to talk about this book right here, which I have finished reading, which is called Rules for Reformers. And Doug is the pastor of Christ Church in Moscow, Idaho. He's also the author of 100 or so books. Uh, Doug, thanks for being on the program today. Great to be with you. Thanks for the invite. Well, Doug, uh, I was, uh, you know, I've, I've been in the pro-life uh, movement for many years, and, you know, I've heard your name mentioned here and there. Uh, but I had never really gotten an opportunity to read your book, and I finally did. And it was published in 2014, so I'm a little bit behind the times here, but it's certainly still very relevant to what we're seeing today. Uh, what I'd like to do, I'm going to take the first half of the program to talk about the book, uh, what was the point, what's the purpose of the book, and I want to talk about one of the things that we've been discussing within our movement, and that is the issue of uh, you know, politics and public policy, and what's the best way forward to be, bring about protections for the unborn. So let's get started. Let me ask you this. The book was, if, and I'm going to probably not do a really good job of characterizing it, but you basically take the, the lessons of the enemy, in particular, the, the, the positions of Saul Alinsky in his book, Rules for Radicals, which I have read and is in my library here, and you more or less kind of give a Reformation counterpoint to it. Uh, I think a lot of people have tried to adapt the uh, Rules for Radicals uh, rules to Christianity. I think you do a really good job here to take what we could glean from, uh, from his book, Rules for Radicals, and uh, kind of give the counterpoint to it. So if you would, uh, what can we learn from guys like Saul Alinsky? I think there's some uh, clear and obvious areas where Christians and someone, a, a radical secularist like Alinsky, would cannot share. He can do things because because the left, because progressives can fight dirty. The, right. You know, the, uh, we're, we're not allowed to fight dirty. We have to fight like Christians. Uh, but there are other places where his intelligence and his canniness um, enabled him, and I even hesitate to use the word common grace, but it enables him to see mm -hmm. things about the way the world works that uh, Christians ought to learn from. Like one of his principles, one of his rules for radicals is you should use tactics that your people enjoy. Yeah. 
Well, that's an, uh, there's nothing sinful about that, <laughs> right? Uh, we don't want to say, well, the godly approach is to use tactics that discourage your people. Uh, so basically, there, it's a, like an overlapping Venn diagram. There are things that are off the table for us because we're Christians. There are things that we can do that, uh, you know, like pray and tithe, you know, mm -hmm. that he would not be able to do that would be off the table for him. But there are areas of, um, there are areas of commonality where we can, we can do what he suggests. There are some areas where I think he sees more clearly the way God made the world than some Christians have uh, concluded in the grip of certain pietistic traditions. So um, his one of his tactics is to personalize the target, freeze the target, personalize it, make it personal. Uh, and we sometimes hesitate to do that. We, because we want to, you know, hate the sin, love the sinner. And, and, and we don't understand that oftentimes there are places where you have to confront the person who is embodying the sin. You know, there's a, uh, there's a person who's carrying the ball for the other team. You have to tackle that guy. You can't tackle an abstract running back. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things I also like about the book is you talk about the difference between a reformation and revolution. I think that's really important. Uh, yeah. We should be men and women of reformation, not revolution. Right. Chris, the historian Christopher Dawson said that the Christian church lives in the light of eternity and can afford to be patient. Uh, the revolutionary, the radical, wants mm -hmm. to burn it down. Um, and they're not interested in the rebuild so much. Uh, reformers, Christians care about changing the world for the good, but they don't have a they don't have faith in chaos. They don't have faith in burning it down. The revolutionary believes that if we just burn it down, then somehow mysteriously a new order will spring up out of the ashes. That's a fundamental belief in chaos. Well, we're Christians. We believe in uh, our Father. We trust in our Father. And he tells us that the yeast is supposed to work through the loaf slowly. He tells us the kingdom of God is like a uh, mustard seed that grows up slowly. Um, the, the water that fills the earth as, as, the, as, the ocean is as, as the water, as the ocean is as full of water, so the earth will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord. That happens slowly. So uh, we, we are to be deliberate and methodical uh, and uh, anticipating what we're going to be discussing later, incremental in our approach. Well, here at Created Equal, we are committed to the long view. Uh, you know, I've been at this for almost 20 years, and we teach people, our young people, that uh, we didn't get here overnight. It's not going to change overnight, although we can pray for radical change to take, take place. We know historically change takes time, generally speaking, and we don't want to employ the, 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 the tactics of the enemy uh, in order to find some kind of cheap solution because those solutions generally don't last very long. Amen. Uh, so, so uh, Doug, in the book, you talk about the difference between principles and methods. Uh, yeah. What is the distinction and why is, why is that important? Um, principles are permanent. They're timeless. Um, methods change from generation to generation. So uh, uh, 3,000 years ago, a battle would be fought with bows and arrows and spears and chariots. 
And those are methods, right? Uh, and we don't fight battles with bows and arrows, spears, or chariots anymore. Uh, we use automatic weapons and tanks and ship, uh, you know, um, uh, metal ships and, uh, you know, so forth. So our methods are completely different. Principles are things like mobility or surprise or uh, concentration of force. So a general fighting 3,000 years ago is going to want to surprise the enemy. The, the winning army is likely to be the one that surprises. The losing army is likely to be the one that is surprised. That's a principle of war. That's a principle of war. And it's identical to what a winning general would want to employ today. Uh, so uh, principles are constant. And, and the temptation is to rely, if you've got a brand new fancy super duper weapon, the temptation is to rely on that weapon and neglect the principle, right? So that's, that's why, for example, the United States in Vietnam was able to uh, fight for many, many years using the highest tech weapons available, uh, but because we ignored principles of war, we just relied on our methods. Mm-hmm. And uh, so one of, the, um, one of the principles of war is communication. You wanna cut the supply line of the enemy. Well, in Vietnam, the supply line ran through Laos, so for political reasons, we didn't cut the supply line of the enemy, and we suffered for it. So if, if you neglect principles, you're going to lose. And if you rely on methods, you're going to lose. And so that's why, um, that's why Christians have to realize the Internet is a method. That's right. Right. The Internet is a method. It used to be maybe a generation ago where you had poster board and demonstrations outside, you know, outside a uh, particular location and you wanted cameras and, and newspapermen there. Well, newspapers right. are, a meth- are a method, right? right. Uh, so we wa- you don't want to be like the generals that are fighting the previous war. My guest is uh, Pastor Doug Wilson, and he he pastors at Christ Church in Moscow, Idaho. I've actually been there, uh, Pastor. I, I uh, did, we conducted some outreach there at the university, Washington State University, right? No, okay, no, no that's hey, Idaho, yeah. Idaho. That's across the that's across the border. Yeah, <laughs> we we went Just to the University of away. Idaho. Yeah, University yeah. of Idaho. Okay. Anyway, so I, yes, I have been there, and 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 actually conducted outreach on that university has been many, many years ago, but uh, we appreciate Doug being on the program. And folks, you can pick up the book, Rules for Reformers, uh, by going to uh, Doug's blog. And if you would, Mr. Producer, pop that up there. You can pick this book up. And if you are a pro-life activist and you have not read this book, you need to read this book because he takes some of the lessons of the enemy, which in this case is Saul Linsky, and uh, I guess redeems them in a way, kind of gives the counterpoint for reformation for the Christian. And I think it's very instructive. Also, some of the rules of war are also used in the culture war, which is what we find ourselves in today. Uh, Doug, Doug uh, let me ask you, I mean, we're now whatever, you know, 40 years into the official culture war, if you want to call it that. And, you know, on many fronts, it looks kind of grim you know, I would uh, even submit that at least at current, we are losing the culture war. Doesn't mean we've lost, but it doesn't, th- things are not heading in our direction for the most part. 
except maybe one little bright spot, and that is the pro-life movement, which has kind of maintained a status quo over these years. Right. Uh, everything else seems to go, be going light speed over the cliff. Um, what do you account that to? The fact that uh, we've been able to maintain kind of a, a presence, at least, and we're not, we haven't lost that battle entirely yet. Right. I would point to a number of things. I think uh, one of the people, credit where credit's due, when Roe v. Wade came down, it was it was touch and go whether evangelicals were going to break pro-life. There were mm -hmm. there were a lot of evangelicals who had not thought through the issue in mm -hmm. detail. And I would give Francis Schaefer and C. Everett Koop credit right. credit for educating the uh, evangelical church and getting getting a pro-life um, set of assumptions into our DNA and into our bones. So even uh, even when someone is a temporizer or if they're evangelical is going squishy on abortion, they have to they have to pay lip service to the pro-life cause. It goes without mm -hmm. saying that evangelicals yeah. are pro-life and and that wasn't always the case. So that would be the historical reason. One of the reasons why I think we're not losing in the same way in the pro-life front is the invention of the development of ultrasound technology. Right. Uh, I, I think that um, that that technology brought home in a very vivid way the the humanity of the unborn children that we've been maintaining all along. Uh, and right. in the early days of the pro-life movement, the only the only place where you could see the humanity of the unborn child was in grotesque surgery photos, you know, um, uh, bloody, um, bloody children who've been killed by abortion and yeah, which is and what we still use on the street by the way <laughs> we still I, use those on college campuses even I have, today and, and i have no objection to that but i would yeah. like a one-two punch basically a one-two punch Agreed. uh this is what you're doing right this yeah. is what you're doing and on the other hand this is what this is the kind of person you're doing it to before you did it all right so yeah. uh, a, a a picture an ultrasound picture of a healthy a uh, happy, contented child juxtaposed right. with um, uh, the the photos we've always had, I think has been uh, uh, one of the reasons why the pro-life movement has been uh, maintained. Also, well, I, th I, I agree. Think Before we we're going to run out of time really fast here, Doug, so we got to keep moving. Yeah. But let me let me jump to the. Uh, I, I told you before the program that I, I watched or listened to a, a debate that you had with an abolitionist who was by the name of Scott Herdman. I know Scott and Scott's a good guy. And you guys basically mm -hmm. discussed the differences between what is being considered as abolition on the anti-abortion front and in incrementalism. You subscribe right. to something and I like the term smash mouth incrementalism. Uh, if you would, can you describe what that means? Sure. This is this is another instance of learning from the left, learning from the progressives. When here in Idaho, when the when the environmentalists, let's say, come and they ask for a million acres to be set aside as wilderness area, mm -hmm. everybody involved in it knows that next year, if we give them what they want, we all know that next year they're going to be back asking for three million acres. We mm -hmm. we know that giving them what they're demanding right now is not going to put this issue to bed. The, the left has successfully uh, been doggedly committed to their form of incrementalism. 
and and they they've used it very effectively. Uh, the problem on the problem that the abolitionists are pointing to, and it can be a very real problem, is that incrementalism and the pro-life cause can sometimes get people to forget what we're in the fight to do. Right. Mm -hmm. So yes. uh, if I say smash mouth incrementalism, I want where's what's the smash mouth part? Well, that means that we're not going to rest. We're not going to be done. The mission will not be accomplished until human abortion is outlawed, period. Right. Rape, incest, no here created equal has been forever. We're for right. the end both. I mean, we're working towards the ultimate end to abortion, the abolition of abortion. But on the way there, we'll take what we can get on the way to ending it all together. Another thing I exactly. liked in the in the debate that you meant that I mentioned prior is that you you said one way to, to handle this is for the governors to sign a statement saying this bill, whatever it is, you can name it a 20 week ban, mm -hmm. a Down syndrome yeah. ban, whatever. Heartbeat. Heartbeat. heartbeat yeah. yeah. That they would sign a statement saying this isn't far enough. We want to go here. And that that allows the principle to, to stay out in front of people. Right. I like that right. idea. Yeah. So what you don't ever want to do as, as someone uh, that I, I was debating with one time about this, he said, you never want to settle for a solution that says, and then it's all right to kill the baby. Right. Uh, so if, if pro-lifers settle for that and allow themselves to be maneuvered into a position of saying, and then it's all right to kill the baby, uh, you've you've been outmaneuvered, but right. I would say that the abolitionists are incrementalists. Also, they're just geographical incrementalists as opposed totally to time in the womb incrementalists. If they want to outlaw abortion in Oklahoma, for example, or in Idaho, wh why one state? You know right. why? Why are you incrementally well? Well, the reason is they get it done on the federal level. And that's what we believe. We, we don't think we can get it done on the federal level and we're working at the state level. I mean, it's yeah. completely a pragmatic decision. Yeah, completely. It's a matter of strategy and tactics. So you right. can't say because we're finite, because any place where we engage the enemy is going to be a finite point. That means, and we can't win every battle all at once. That means that everybody involved in this is, is an incrementalist. So I would yeah. say there are incrementalists who have not forgotten what the point of the war is about, and there are incrementalists who have. Right. And and that's true of the pro-life movement. I think there are people that have lost sight of what we're here to do. Uh, right. It's become something else to them. Uh, it's right. always been about abolishing abortion to me from the beginning. Uh, our organization here has stood for that and continues to. We're not all that political to begin with, but we will support measures that get us in the direction of finally ending it all together. Uh, right. Doug, if you would, I, I, I wanted to take you down the road of the possibility of one of these uh, abolition bills, if you will, the anti-abortion abolition bills, actually being signed into law. One of the things I thought was interesting in your conversation with Scott Herndon is you tried to get them or him to answer the question, what happens next? Because when they when a when a governor signs a bill of abolition, he also, according to the abolition bill itself, he has to defy the federal government and the ruling of mm -hmm. Roe versus Wade. And I don't think mm -hmm. they've, in my opinion, have thought through that fully and what that might right. implicate. Right. And Jesus tells you when you're about to go to war, count your troops. Right. Yeah. 
um, do I have do I have the resources to complete this fight that I'm picking? Mm-hmm. Right? Do I even know what fight I'm picking? Uh, mm-hmm. And I think that some people aren't are they just think it's going to be a grand gesture. They think that they're going to be able to have a pro life state the same way that states can legalize marijuana or the same way that cities can make uh, their city a sanctuary city for uh, undocumented uh, illegals. Uh, mm-hmm. It's no, no, because abortion is their, the, our adversary's blood sacrament. Um, they, they will let, they will let the marijuana thing go. They will let the, the illegal alien thing go because that, in fact, they want that. Um, but they don't want any kind of true sanctuary for the unborn. So consequently, uh, the troops would be sent in right now. And, and that's not a, that's not an argument for flinching. That's just an argument. Uh, I, I think of Oscar it's reality. Wilde. It's reality. Oscar Wilde said a gentleman is someone who never insults someone else accidentally. <laughs> right. If, if a state starts a war with the federal government, it ought not to be something they back into or blunder into, mm-hmm. right? So uh, yeah. let's let's say uh, uh, if um, and I I don't want to sound too radical or too too much my hair on fire. Let's say there were a state somewhere that seceded from the union over the pro life issue, and let's say it came to fighting. Let's say it came to um, that was the issue of secession. We don't want babies to be killed. Um, I think that that would be a worthy thing for the governor and the people of that state to do. I would uh, cheer them on and quite likely be there with them. I, I don't think that's a bad thing to do. I do think it's a bad thing to do accidentally. Yeah. And so why do you think, I mean, you use the word secession. That's what the pro-abortion advocates use also to defeat these bills. Why mm-hmm. does it really mean secession or does it just mean well, the federal government might roll the tanks or they might pull funding or, you know, some kind of constitutional crisis because secession is yeah. a pretty strong word. I mean, it's a it's a bold yeah. move, obviously, to secede from the union. Yeah. So I would say the, basically I use the word secession in my discussion with anti-incrementalists or the abolitionists, uh-huh. because I'm saying you, you, there are certain places you are not willing to go. Right. Right. Certain things you're not willing to do. So you're not willing to sign a bill. Let's say you're the governor of the state. You're not willing. I'm an abolitionist. I won't sign this heartbeat bill. Okay. And I say, yeah, but you would sign the bill outlawing all human abortion. And if the bill fails, you you remain politically connected with the state next door that allows abortion on demand up to birth. Why? Why are you doing that? Because the abolitionist is uh, trading on the sort of the purity of the rhetoric. And I'm mm-hmm. simply pointing out, no, we're all complicit in this mess. It, it really is a mess. And it and we have to fight the fight f- from where we are. Agreed. My guest again today is uh, Pastor Doug Wilson, and you can go to his blog at dougwills, that's one L, dot com. And on there, you'll, he'll, uh, they'll list all of his books. He's written over 100 of them. This one, Rules for Reformers, I just got done reading, and I suggest you pick it up. Uh, if you are a pro-life activist and are important, you're, you, you are interested in tactics, how to best execute the pro-life strategy in America, 
then you need to pick up this book because I think it gives you some really practical uh, things to be considering as to how we go forward in fighting this evil. Uh, Doug, we've got uh, about a minute left, not a whole much bunch of time. But if you would real quickly, you know, one of the things that I feel is unhelpful is to categorize the pro-life movement as the reason abortion remains legal, uh, discounting the work that hundreds and thousands of pro-life activists and Christians have done over the last 60 years or so. Uh, yeah, obviously, abortion is still legal. We have failed, if you want to hold, it, hold us to that counting, which I think is true. But there are a lot of good pro-life people out there that continue to fight for the right reasons. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm concerned that that throwing the baby out with the bathwater is unhelpful. And if you would, we don't have a whole lot of like 30 seconds. What are your thoughts? Sure. Uh, I, basically, I would want to flip it around. I believe that the pro-life movement in Europe, there is no pro-life movement to speak of. Right. Mm -hmm. But the thing that pro-lifers have done in this country is they've kept the issue alive. Right. Yep. They've kept the issue alive. And the thing that uh, people don't recognize is that we've been in existence long enough, have millions of people show up in Washington every year to march. And we've existed long enough for the pro-life movement to develop a hard right wing. The right. abolition, which is which right. is necessary. And I agree with you again. My guest has been Doug Wilson, and you can pick up his book. Rules for Reformers, or any one of his 100 books that he's authored by going to DougWills.com. That's one L, DougWills.com. We'll see you next time. God bless you. God bless America. And remember, America, to bless God. You've been listening to Mark Harrington, your radio activist. For more information on how to make a difference for the cause of life, liberty, and justice, go to createdequal.org. To follow Mark, go to markharringtonshow.com. Be sure to tune in next time for your marching orders in the culture war.